Good afternoon, folks, and welcome to the Legal Beagle podcast. Welcome to 2021. Hopefully, it is a better year than what we experienced in 2020. I've come up with three different things that I'm going to focus on this year, maintain, improve, and challenge. And what I mean by that is I want to maintain what we did in 2020. I want to improve on the things that worked and get rid of the things that didn't. And I want to challenge myself to get uncomfortable and do some things that maybe I didn't do for uh, lack of, of wanting to get uncomfortable. So that's my personal mission in 2021. I hope you have yours, but I have a great lineup this year of guests that will be on the Legal Beagle podcast. And we're going to start off with probably my favorite human in the world. He is not only a life care planning expert, he's a motorcycle riding aficionado and a part-time comedian, Rob Tremp. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I was kidding about the comedian. I'm not, I'm not going to expect you to tell any jokes today. Yeah, I, I had none prepared, but uh, I, I say that for trial, right? So well, yes, exactly. Wait, wait till you're on the stand. I think it's funny that we both have our virtual backgrounds. I have the Legal Beagle Library and you have the, the Rob Tremp study. I think it's- I've read, it's, I've read all the books. They're all right there behind me. Right, yeah. all of them, all of them. So let's start off with some basic questions about life care planning and vocational rehabilitation. Then I want to dive a little deeper, but can you give me kind of a cursory overview of what life care planning is? Uh, life care planning, yeah, it is very quickly. It is, we've all heard of somebody falling off a roof. They're 35 years old and now they're in a wheelchair, okay? And so a life care plan is going to answer all the questions that that brings up. Uh, how many wheelchairs? How many surgeries? How much medication? Uh, what can they do for work? Did, was their bedroom on the second floor of their two-story home? How are they going to get up there at night? Uh, there's a cost associated with that. So a life care plan historically was developed as a case management tool to answer all of those questions. Obviously, it's heavily used in, uh, in litigation, but it spells out the service, where you get it, how much it costs, and it totals it all at the end. How did you get involved in this area of work? <laughs> uh, you know, I had a, I started out with the state of Arizona as a vocational rehabilitation counselor, and they sent me through grad school to get my graduate degree in special education re rehabilitation counseling. And along the way, I had found and learned that there um, is a need for experts with my background, training, and experience. And so I trained under Dr. Deutsch, who is the, you know, the godfather of life care planning. He taught me everything. He's wrote all the books. There are all the books that are behind me. <laughs> all his. And um, so that that's how I got into it. And I learned from him and the rest is history. So I had the opportunity to meet Dr. Deutsch a few years ago when you had been to Arizona. And, you know, I probably don't appreciate what he did for this area of expertise as much as you do. Can you tell me a little bit about his background and how you ended up forming a, a relationship with him? Yeah, certainly. Like I said, he in the 70s and 80s developed life care planning. He saw that there was a need in, in rehabilitation hospitals, uh, you know, especially for discharge planning. You pick up that roofer that's now in a wheelchair. He's a quadriplegic patient. And the family, family members say, now what? What do we do? Where do we go? What happens next? Uh, you know, the doctors told us he's going to need some PT and this and that. But my gosh, uh, there's so much that goes along with having that type of disability or any kind of disability. And so he came up with this very concise, uh, well-founded document and methodology. And the, 
you know, thereafter he wrote the books, the textbooks, he's done the trainings and it's really morphed into a litigation tool to be honest, you know, it has, and you know, everybody knows that. And, um, he is credited as, as really spearheading this industry. Uh, and so in my training, I, um, trained with him in 2004, around 2014, his office called and said, Hey, we've seen your work. We like your work. We'd like you to come and help Dr. Deutsch retire, which I thought was, you know, uh, very good credit to me, which, you know, and I appreciate that very much. And that's exactly what I've done. So you've kind of taken the reins from Dr. Deutsch and, and run with it. And I know you mentioned that it's, it's more of a litigation tool now for those listeners and viewers that maybe don't understand how this would interact with their personal injury case. And I know this can, can cross over to workers comp and other types of, of injury claims, but as it relates to personal injury, why would a client need to have a life care planner? Isn't it? And I'm going to, I'm going to ask you an elementary question that you're probably going to scoff at, but wouldn't the insurance company for the other person just pay for all their future medical care? Like why do they need to have you involved? <laughs> right. And then there's your scoff right there. So, uh, in, you know, insurance companies are in business to evaluate cases and pay on claims that they think is worthwhile paying, right? That's what they do. And sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And that's where lawyers come in when they don't. Uh, so for a, a case, even as simple or little as somebody that needs a back, back surgery or fusion surgery, it still warrants. It still warrants a life care plan because uh, you, as the attorney, uh, need to explore every single type of damage and um, and, and and see that the insurance company sees it all the way through. And so, if the attorney just says, "Hey, look, you know, I need I need a hundred thousand dollars for this fusion surgery," they're gonna they're gonna come back and say, "Hey, look, you know, we need more than that." Okay, well, that's where I come in place. I talk to the doctors. I talk to the patient. I have not just a fusion surgery, but then the physical therapy that goes along with it, uh, the medications that go along with it, the time off of work that goes along with that. And so the attorney might have just said, look, send me 100K for the surgery. Well, guess what? You talk to me and, um, and, and I do the same if I was retained by the defense. I, I do, I do you know, defense work and I do it the same both ways. I just call it as it is. But I explore with the treating doctors or the consulting physician everything associated with that for the future. And so you're able to kind of capture that for, uh, for each client. So it gives you more of a substantial packet of information or actual evidence that you can present to the insurance company by way of the defense attorneys and, and defendants and, and say, look, this is actually how this was calculated. This is how we got to the hundred thousand dollars to use that example. Right. And methodology and backed up by the physicians. Right. So I take the extra step and I talk to the physician. I say, hey, look, you know, maybe the patient's already had a fusion. Well, guess what? In 15 to 20 years from now, are they going to have adjacent segment breakdown uh, and have to have another surgery again? Or if they're younger in their 30s, you might have to have two or three more fusions in the future. And so that can add up to three, four or five hundred thousand uh, dollars as the case progresses or as a, as a person progresses aging with disability. And so we capture that and then it's well-founded and backed up uh, by the doctor. And that's what we call, not to get too technical here, but that's what we call convergent validity, right? When we're looking at statistics and that kind of thing, how many, how many opinions and viewpoints and data points converge into one opinion? And so look, I've looked at the patient, uh, the doctor, 
um, has done their work, another doctor has opined, and we all say, yeah, guess what? You're gonna have three more surgeries. And so it really gives the insurance no wiggle room at all to come back and say, no, you don't. You don't need surgeries. Uh uh. Okay, then fine. Send them to your doctor, your IME doc across town, and then who's gonna say that they're perfect, nothing ever happened. And uh, there's nothing to see here. Well, that's fine, but that's a consulting physician. It's not the treating doctor that knows the patient best. Uh, So uh, in in that case and instance, again, we have uh, the the, the person themselves, the doctor, et cetera, and it all compiles into really an unassailable opinion that there's a need here that's quantified by cost. I love that. That phrase is convergent validity. Is that my saying it right? Yeah, so convergent, where we have three rivers converging into the Mississippi, right? And so we have uh, three different opinions, three different folks looking at this, or four or five or however many on the, are on the team, the you know, physical therapists, occupational therapists, um, saying that, hey, look, yeah, you know, there is a need for surgery here, and maybe just two or, maybe two or three surgeries too. So we have more than one data point, more than just me saying it or one doctor. Um, so that's why we converge on the validation. I like that. Can you explain the difference between the discipline of life care planning and vocational rehabilitation? Because they are different. I think sometimes people try to group them together. Yeah. So, so, and, and, and they oftentimes get the, the word economist mixed up as well, right? Uh, so the other area that I opine is vocational rehabilitation. And that is Going back to our, our quad patient who was a roofer, 35 years old, obviously he cannot go back with his high school education and become a roofer uh, with, while being in a wheelchair. All right, so what can he do? So I will, uh, again, interview the patient, maybe do some vocational testing to see if they go back to school or have transferable skills to do other types of jobs or if they can work at all. Where, you know, where do they stand in the, in the, in the labor market? So. Let's say this roofer, by the time he was 35, was making $40,000 a year, still had another 20 years or so to work. So the quick math right there is 40, uh, 20 years times 40, it's about $800,000 uh, $800, vocational loss. Um, he's probably not going to go back to work as a quad patient at all, ever. Uh, now, on our smaller back cases, uh, where the patient needs a surgery or two, they might be able to go back to work. You know, so we're looking at, you know, a year or two or three uh, of, um, of lost wages. And then hopefully we can get them into something that they can do and get back to work. Because, you know, I, at the end of the day, I do want everybody to work, right? No matter who hires me, who's paying my bill. Um, I like to see that people get back to work. It's therapeutic and it's, and it's a benefit to us all as a society that people work. So, um you know, you, you run from the extreme of no work at all to, oh, I have a bad back, but what can I do now for work? And we're going to find out what that is. And then sometimes there's a wage differential. Um, if they were a physical labor and they worked so hard with their high school degree to get to $40,000 a year, now they have to do sedentary work, well, they might be going back to work at minimum wage or a little bit more doing something because they can't do that physical job anymore and they don't have a college degree to go back to. So there's a wage differential there. Now, the economist, right? then takes my everyday simple math numbers and grows them into the future and reduces them back down to present value. And he, he does that for the earnings and he does that for each individual type of medical service and life care plan to get to a present value calculation. So 
that's a third opinion, which I don't do. I have persons in my company that does do that, where I can get you in touch with uh, e economists that we work with. Um, but that's a that's the difference between the econ and the voc. I'm glad you you distinguish that difference because I think you're right. A lot of people think it's one and the same, and it's totally different. And really, it's a completely different discipline to do the economic side of of the the valuation. Correct. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Two different things. Mm -hmm. What, in your opinion, is the most challenging thing about the life care planning work that you do? You know, it, it's the process in and of itself is standardized and it's peer reviewed and it's scientific and there's a methodology to it. Uh, the most difficult part is my, it, it, what, what takes a lot of time in the case is not me reading the records, not me interviewing the patient. It's getting the doctors to write us back. Now, how have I solved that? I have a gal named Penny in my office and she works from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. She does one thing every single day. And that is she writes the, sends letters to the doctors and gets them back. And so since I've had Penny, that's been really solved. And so we have really good turnaround and everything is documented um, in that whole entire process about who we talked to, when, what the results were of, of the talk. And then we, we get that letter back, the foundation letter to support the life care plan. That's about it. Um, even cross-examination, most, most persons would, you know, when we're doing expert witness work, you, know, you, go, you go to conferences and, and there's cross-examination and there's testifying and this and that at the conference topics. And I'm always like, look, if you do your job objectively and right, you have nothing to fear or worry about at deposition or at trial or anything like that. It just is what it is. So um, as long as you know, you're following methodology and that kind of thing. So that's, that's about the hardest part. As it relates to those doctors and getting those foundation letters, do you think it's more of just they're busy and they're preoccupied with the work they're doing on a daily basis? It's not that they don't want to help and support the plan that you've put together, do you find that it's more just, you know, it's one of those additional things they have to do and they have to be hounded to get it back? Or is it, or do you find that doctors push back and don't want to participate in uh, the plan that's being put together? Very, very rarely do they not want to. I, I do come across it every now and then. They, they don't want to deal with it. They feel, oh gosh, there's lawyers involved. I don't want to get pulled into this. That's a rare occasion. Uh, most of the time, it's us trying to get through the HIPAA issue. Who are you calling? Why are you calling? Wh what do you want? Um, HIPAA issue. And then having the MA track the guy down and sit the doctor down, he or she, uh, doctor down and say, hey, look, here's this form. Fill this out for your patient. It's very important. They need to fill it. They need to um, send it back. And so, okay, they might look at it and go, gosh, I, you know, I got to look on the chart and that kind of thing. So it's just doctors are busy. They're overwhelmed through and through as we all know. Uh, so um, I, I think it's just more of that as opposed to not wanting to, to participate. All right. Same question for the vocational rehabilitation discipline. What is the most challenging thing in that line of work? You know, again, not so much when I have a catastrophic case, like our roofer, and he's a high level quad is, is the example, not going to go back to work, right? Not many juries is going to say, hey, sorry, but <laughs> you got to go back and do something. And some do. There are people in wheelchairs that do go to work. There's amputation uh, patients. 
that do go to work. The problem is they're very difficult to get hired, right? And so to rehabilitate persons with more of a catastrophic issue, it's very difficult for them to get hired. Now, the most difficult part in rehabilitating a sore back person, right, or a person with headaches and that kind of thing that, that, get, that you know, we're all sitting around and goes, you know what, I have a sore back too and I'm, and I'm working. And that's fine. Uh, and it's always a good point. It, it, it is really looking at the individual and where they live. Is it rural? Is it, um, you know, a big city? Is there opportunities in and around them? Because a sore back patient in the middle of downtown Phoenix is very different than a sore back patient in any kind of rural town anywhere around the state. There's just not much uh, economic opportunity for them. So they're, they're, they can have subtle differences in that regard. So it's a bit of a, of a tussle back and forth with our sore back persons. Um, but if you, again, if you follow the methodology and you follow the data and statistics where it shows that persons who do, who, who has an injury or a disruption in their life have a lower earning capacity, um, then again, the, the, you just follow the evidence and follow the data. In the work that you do, do you find, let me, let me back up and, and set the table for this question because it's, it's important for the clients that will watch this podcast because a lot of people ask us when, when we hire you or any other expert, what does that expert do? And this is a great video that I can point them to and say, look, you can hear from the expert himself. You can hear from Rob Trump and I'll kind of talk about what he does so you can hear it from him. There are terms that are thrown around in our profession uh, more by the defense than yeah. by the plaintiffs. And these terms are malingering, secondary gain, mm -hmm. the idea that these people that have injuries are faking their injuries. Yeah. Do you find that in the evaluations you do with clients? And uh, imagine maybe it's rare or maybe it's not so rare, but what are your thoughts on, on that? You know, it, it, we all see the 60 minute specials where they, they, they do find the person riding a roller coaster or a bowling league. That's, you know, that's has an injury claim and that sticks with everybody. Right. Um, there are experts out there that do such things as an MMPI Minnesota multiphasic personality inventory. It has a quote unquote fake bad scale. And it's always very controversial. Um, when I'm asked that in deposition or trial saying, Hey, are you sure they're not faking or what about secondary gain, et cetera? I tend to, defer to the triers of fact in that regard. I tend to not get stuck in that game, if you will. I take the person with what we call unconditional positive regard, meaning that um, I take them as they are and for their word, right? And, uh, and I let the jury and the triers of fact do their job. The attorneys on both sides if, 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 if an attorney is thinking somebody's faking or, or faking bad or, or malingering or trying to get secondary gain, they can address that with the jury and the, and the plaintiff attorney can also address that with the jury. So I try not to get so much 
involved with that game because I'm not a human lie detector test. Now, on very few occasions, I'm trying to recall them where um, I've had people say, hey, don't tell my attorney this, <laughs> or you shouldn't know that about me or that kind of thing. And I just stop right there and I say, hey, look, you know, I'm gonna, gonna have to call your attorney and we're gonna have to address this because I cannot be compromised or you know, we need to be objective here. So that, you know, I'd be lying to say it doesn't happen. Like I said, we've all seen the 60 minute episodes where, where they show that, sure, I'm being realistic, but I try to let the triers of fact do their job in, in terms of that. Do you find that the people you work with appreciate the work that you do? And now when I say that, I know you work, you're typically hired by an attorney, whether it's the plaintiff or the defense, and, and you're, you're paid through that arrangement or relationship, but really you're there to help evaluate a person who was injured or if on the defense side to evaluate whether the injuries are legitimate, whether the, um, the claims being made by the plaintiff are substantiated. Do you get to know these people? Do you, do you get to, to learn a little bit more about their lives and, and, and you know, how this injury has taken a toll on them? hundred percent. And, and so, you know, one of the questions is, you know, are you providing these services to them? Well, by my evaluation and working with them, it is, a, it is a one-time indirect uh, service. You know, they're going to have a life care plan document. They're going to have vocational opinions and recommendations. And I find more often than not that, you know, when I interview persons, in fact, I, I was just on with a mother uh, who has a 15-year-old daughter who, who had a, has a head injury. And, you know, I know that they're always going to get emotional during the process of the interview. And I always, I always say, Hey, don't worry. I'm undefeated in, in making people cry. And it happens every single time. So get the Kleenex out. Let's go. Let's, let's get the tears going and, and, and do this. And then they feel better and they kind of laugh and that kind of thing. So it's just a really a therapeutic benefit just for people to have others to listen to or, or for the, the you know, person like me to listen to them. It's a very therapeutic thing for them. And then they feel very confident because in going through the process, you answer so many of their questions, right? Let's go back to a life care plan. A well-written life care plan answers questions and it doesn't raise questions. That's how you know you have a good one there. And, and so, and, or, and that's you know, part of the methodology. And so by you just answering a lot of their questions, about um, their loved ones or about themselves is a very beneficial thing. So I do get a lot of, you know, you know, thank yous and that kind of thing after, after, and, and again, I'm not their advocate either. I want to be clear. I'm, I, I am objective uh, in that regard where, uh, you know, I, I, I'm just, I'm just not their advocate and they, they get that. They understand that, but it's just helpful to have for them to have somebody to listen to. Do you ever wonder in the years of, of work that you've done in the hundreds, maybe thousands of cases that you've been hired as an expert on, do you ever wonder what happened to some of those people? Meaning I look at an expert, this is a bad analogy, Rob, but I look at an expert like a chef. You're back in the kitchen making the dinner. You never really know if the customer enjoyed it, whether that you, you influenced them in any way. Do you ever wonder what happened to some of these people? And it, it doesn't matter what side of the, the fence you're on. You've had so many cases, and I imagine very few go to trial, and and maybe you even find out what happened. But a lot of them resolve without a trial, and 
are, do you ever, are you ever up at night going, I wonder what happened to, to so-and-so? I, I sure do. And we've tried that and we're going to be trying more of that. There's a doctor in town that I've, that I've been talking to about having a very quick follow-up um, interview a year or two post post me um, for them to just take their phone out and click different things about, you know, are they still following through as, you know, how are you doing? You know, are you getting the services you need and that kind of thing? Cause I really do want that feedback. We've tried doing that before with phone calls and that kind of thing. And typically they're like, Hey, look, you know, I, that was, you know, a while ago, we're just trying to move on. It's hard to get good data from that, but I sure do wish I had more information because again, I, I'm asked that in just about every deposition, you know, do you follow these people? How do you know they're, they're implementing the life care plan? Do they just throw it out afterwards? Um, you know, what are they doing with it? So uh, that is an ongoing project of which, um, I'm hoping to do more of in 2021. It'd be interesting to see the data on that, whether or not you'll, <laughs> it'll be proprietary and whether you'll share it, because I wonder the same thing. Sometimes you get these life care plans and then people get compensated, whether it's for the life care plan or the vo yeah. vocational plan. And I wonder how much of that actually gets put into play. And if they're actually taking advantage of the recommendations that their doctors made that then you then spelled out in the life care plan or recommendations that you've made as it relates to gainful employment. And whether or not they've taken those steps to uh, get trained in a different area of work or actually pursue those things. And I, you know, I, I realize that there's a limited role that we both have in the lives of the people that, uh, that we work for. But I, I, I at night wonder that sometimes what happened to so-and-so and, and did they get, you know, down the right path? Did they, did they use the money for the, for the, the right reasons? And, and did they spend it on the things that really would help them improve their life? It, it, and that brings up such a good, almost a segue point with that is, is when you're, when you're talking right there, I'm thinking, did I nail it? Did we get it right? Right. Is, is, do we get it too much? Do we get it too little? Do we get it just right? And here's, here is sometimes uh, we hear at conferences and we talk us experts in the life care plan. Well, I do conservative life, conservative life care plans, right? Okay, you do conservative life care plans. Why? Well, is to to not to make cross examination easier with the defense. I don't throw everything in. Okay, I get. It. But but then, are you doing the patient? Are you cutting them short? Are you adequately meeting their needs? There's no such thing as a as a as a conservative life care plan or a kitchen sink life care plan because if a life care plan is done right, it just adequately meet, meets their needs, right? Either right you. Does that make sense? And so it, it, it does. And I, I actually, I, I think it, it, it's really um, akin to medical care you'd get at a hospital. I don't think the hospital is giving you medication or taking your blood and running labs and doing all the things they're doing for the sake of doing it. I think they're doing it to diagnose the issue, to, to treat you properly, to, to get you to a place where you can leave the hospital. I look at the plan the same way. If you're conservative, then you're you're cheating people out of the care that could actually benefit them. So I, right. I don't I don't like that at all. I think it's the opposite. I think when you do that, you're not doing the people that you are hired to help any justice by being conservative. Right, right. So you have a, a bunch of uh, letters behind your name. I want to yep. ask what a couple of these mean. You are well credentialed, Mr. Trump, and I want to ask just a couple, uh, just about a couple of these and what they stand for. So it. After your name, you have an MA. What does MA stand for? That's my Master of Arts in Special Education and Rehabilitation Counseling at the University of Arizona. 
Okay. And then you have a CRC. Certified Rehabilitation Counselor. And then a CLCP. Certified Life Care Planner. And then an LAC. LAC, I have to, I have to expand on that. So an, a licensed associate counselor. And what that's for is a state licensure for talk therapy. Now, as you've known for family and personal reasons and business reasons, I've gone between Florida and Arizona quite a bit. And you're supposed to be ethically, you're supposed to be, be licensed in the state in which you reside. And again, for personal reasons, I've gone back and forth. And so that LAC has been gone back and forth between Florida and here. So right now I'm dropping the LAC. Uh, and so I'm just going to have MACRC and CLCP just to be clear. So, uh, well, and I want to ask, because I was reading a little bit before this podcast about the certifications of being a life care planning expert or a vocational expert. And for those attorneys that are watching this and those people that may be new to hiring you as an expert or just your profession as an expert, what should they be looking for as it relates to the person that they're hiring? Not just their knowledge and understanding of how to put together a life care plan or do a vocational plan, but the credentials that they carry that maybe separates them from the herd. Yeah, you really want somebody with a strong rehabilitation background. And my MA was in special education and rehabilitation counseling. It was in a special education school but his rehabilitation counseling is the emphasis. And then I was able, because I finished that program, I was able to train there uh, post-grad, grad, you know, uh, at the University of Florida in life care planning and also uh, sit for the, the rehabilitation, the, the two national board certifications, which is uh, rehabilitation counseling and life care planning. Now, there are a lot of physicians that are doing this work as well. Uh, and they don't take the steps often to get the certifications and it shows because what's happening with a lot of, a lot of physician life care planners is some are really good. They are. And some I find where they are not reaching out to the actual treaters. Right. And so they're, you know, even though they're a doctor, they may be opining in areas in which they're not certified outside their scope and it gets them into some Daubert issues uh, it, it, a lot of times it does. And so you just got to be careful. If you're going to look at a doctor, uh, a physician, life care planner, you got to be very careful of that. So you just dropped a, a nugget that all the attorneys watching this will know what that meant, but all the non-attorneys will be like, what did he say? Daubert? Like you're talking about the Dilbert, the cartoon. So what is a Daubert and what, how does that play into the work that you do? So Daubert is a junk science issue, right? Uh, and, and so if an expert makes an opinion on something, they have to also show why, what is it scientific? Is it backed up by some sort of scientific data? So just to cut down right into this area, a, let's say you hire a, uh, MD life care planner who, uh, is not a surgeon, right? Let's say it's a physiatrist. Okay. And that MD life care planner physiatrist just independently said, well, they're going to need three surgeries because of this. Well, they're not qualified to do that. Number one, because they're physiatrists, they don't do surgeons. And number two is they don't back it up scientifically or concretely by asking the actual treater or an actual surgeon, is this a surgical candidate? Once that's done, then sure, then there's scientific 
um, validation again, or convergent validity between the two docs. And yeah, this is a surgical candidate. And there's plenty of examples out there of, of them, of the judge striking them under a Daubert motion. And then that expert doctor just, his opinions will not be accepted by the court and the jury will never hear them. So it's, it's a very serious issue. Yeah, it sounds like it, it really keeps experts honest. It has to keep them honest. It's a kind of a check and balance from just an expert getting up on the stand and saying whatever they want or writing a report that really can't be based in any sort of methodology or science or any data that to back it up. What, what is it? The, the Latin phrase, ipsy dixit, because I say it's so, therefore it is so, right? Right. And, uh, you know, just because I have all these credentials and I'm a doctor or, or I'm a life care planner, just because I say it is, doesn't necessarily always mean I mean it's so. I have to um, back it up with some sort of, of validation or science or data. Rob, what does the next 10 years of your expert practice look like? I imagine at some point you will find yourself in the same position that Dr. Deutsch was in where you're going to need or want to retire. Are you already thinking forward to training the next line of experts that may do this work? Or what are your thoughts over the next, next decade? You know, thanks for asking that. I ha I'm proud that over the last couple of years, I've developed two uh, life care planners in my practice, Jennifer Primavera and Laura Brown, who is Dr. Deutsch's daughter, right? So we're very lucky to have both of them. And Jennifer Primavera is also a licensed uh, psychologist and counselor who's done a lot of child and family counseling and therapies. Uh, and so she uh, has just an extra credential that is outstanding. Uh, so I am looking to uh, develop uh, other persons, other professionals in my practice and oversee their work and, and they'll be great testifiers. So that's exactly the track for the next 10 years. Nice. Well, Rob, I appreciate everything you do and the work that you do. I know that I'm biased because I've in full transparency hired you multiple times for multiple clients. I do understand that you do defense work as well, but I admire how honest and the integrity you show in the work that you do, whether it's for a plaintiff or for uh, the defense. Before I let you go, before I let yes. you go, I wanted to ask about some personal stuff that you, uh, you enjoy doing dirt bike riding, for example, I know you're an avid dirt bike rider. How did you get into dirt bike riding? You know, it's something I always wanted to do as a kid. And I was out mountain biking about five years ago and I met a group of guys on a mountain bike ride and they're actual avid dirt bike riders in their forties, fifties, and sixties. And so I got together with those guys and I wound up about a dirt bike. I joined a club. I do some local races in the desert and, um, and it's just a great time. It's always a dream I had as a kid. Couldn't do it. And now I can. Do you love it? I love it. I love it. I don't golf so much anymore. I love it that much. So my golf game is really taking a dive, but you know, now I have my kid out or my children, both my daughter, she's 12. She rides very well. And my son, my 10 year old son, I have, uh, you know, lessons for them. Safety. Number one, they, they don't need to race. I just want some, some, uh, riding buddies. That's it. That's so fun. Well, if, if people want to get in touch with you directly, whether it's uh, potential clients, people just watching this podcast or other attorneys, how do they reach you? Uh, easy. Uh, uh, attorneys have my personal cell phone. You can as well. It's area code 480-682-7444 or r.tremp, T-R-E-M as in Mary, P as in Paul at deutschtremp.com and Deutsch is spelled D-E-U-T-S-C-H. 
Rob, I know you're busy. I appreciate you taking time to do this podcast, kicking off 2021 on the Legal Beagle podcast. Thank you so much for being a guest. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Thanks.